Well, today, as our series continues, Progressive Christianity is, and fill in the blank, ellipsis point, dot, 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 that yes. means we have more to say. Yes. Um, we're going to broach the subject, very important subject of prayer. All religions, I think, and it's been really intriguing for me the last couple of weeks to have had A.J. Levine, a devout Jewish woman, two weeks ago, and then to have Dr. Matson last week, uh, a Muslim and a scholar of Islam. Uh, they would agree with me that all religions hold prayer as an important component of their faith and their spirituality. Uh, personally, for me, in recent years, prayer has become, and I say become because life is always becoming, and our ideas of God and life are always evolving, becoming. If they're not, I, I think, I hesitate to use the word should, that's a harsh word, but I really think life is healthiest when our ideas are evolving and growing, and prayer has become for me a really beautiful part of my life, and that wasn't always the case. Uh, for a long time, I can admit that prayer was a painful part of my life, and that has to do with my religious upbringing. Um, that has to do with the way I digested uh, the religion of my youth. Prayer was a burdensome, taxing onus on my spiritual shoulders. It was something that I always felt like I was supposed to do more of, but never really found a rhythm to. Um, I remember as a young preacher waking up in the morning at 5 o'clock and feeling necessarily like I had to devote an hour and a half and it had to be on my knees in a particular form and I had to talk to God and say all of these wise things to God and possibly even hear from God. And for me, the case was always that I would run out of things to say in about two and a half minutes. And then there was this uncomfortable, this uncomfortable quietness. Frederick Buechner said one of the reasons that we despise quietness, silence, is because it says way too much. And I have found that the very thing about prayer that I despised, and that was that I didn't have a whole lot to say and felt a little awkward saying it into the invisible space around me. Uh, for me now, prayer is almost all, and this is no imposition upon you, it's just my journey. Prayer is almost all silence now because I've talked enough in my life. My great-granddad used to tell me wisdom is a lifetime of listening when you'd rather be talking. And my life in vocational ministry has been a whole lot more about talking than it has been listening. So these days I have found a rhythm to a, a, a little 24-minute, I'll just get particular, a little 24-minute space that I find at least six out of seven days, sometimes good weeks, seven out of seven days, 24 minutes, why 24 minutes? That's my own journey, but 24 minutes of silence, of quietude. I remember I was struck long before I understood it by Mother Teresa's comments. I think it was to Dan Rather. I've quoted them before, but Mother Teresa, when asked by Dan Rather, what do you say when you pray? She said, well, I, I don't say much. I just listen. Rather, understanding that she was supposedly talking to God, said, well, what does God say when you're listening? And she said, he doesn't say much, he just listens. <laughs> and then she paused, and she said, really, truly, prayer is the union of listening hearts. 
And I, I thought three or four times in the course of 30 years of ministry, I've been with people who had major organ transplants and met the person, the person's family who donated the organs. I remember one time when I was at Christ Church, a lady came down from Pennsylvania to lay her head on the chest of a 65-year-old man in our church who had her 17-year-old son's heart in his chest. He was not much of a touchy-feely guy, but I remember how warmly he embraced her. And I remember, Kelly, this woman who didn't even know this man, I remember as she leaned her head into his chest it was, one of those, it was one of those cryings where the face doesn't scrunch up, but the eyes just leak, and they just, and she held her ear against his heart, listening. Can you imagine? We can't. God help us that we'll never be able to imagine listening to the heart of her son beating in the chest of another. And I'm struck by that picture because for me, wherever it is, generally it's somewhere in nature, when I try to find that space between the leaves to focus my attention and get the, si get the clutter of my life out and just try to find that vortex, that portal into another world that actually I now know is inside of me, remembering that on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell in that Ptolemaean universe of three tiers where God was out there and we were down here, when the Holy Spirit fell, which was the only way they could have understood it 2,000 years ago, I now remember that Jesus, just before the Holy Spirit fell, told them, the kingdom of heaven, it's inside of you. And then the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell from heaven, and I think, Glenn, well, of course it did, because the kingdom of heaven was inside. The Holy Spirit did not come across the universe. The Holy Spirit transcends space. The Holy Spirit dropped down into their consciousness from the heaven that was within them. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven's within. And so for me, prayer has become a whole lot less about talking. And prayer has become a posture of life. Prayer has become a disposition. I try to do that 24-minute space at the beginning of, day, of the day so I can kind of move attitudinally into life that way. It's an attitude. It's an applied perspective. It's... A life well lived is prayer. George Meredith said, whoever rises from their prayer a better person, their prayer has been answered. I love that. Prayer, for me, this is just me, but I think Jesus touched on this when he looked at the people one day and he said they look like a bunch of animals at the mill grinding painfully and slowly. And when he looked for the responsibility of their pain, he looked to the religious leaders. And I, I love religion, but religion always has to be careful because in our power there can always be a negative yield if we don't steward well these things that have been given us. And Jesus looked at the religious leaders and he looked back at these worn out people and he said, you heap burdens on them that they can't bear. What a thing to say. I mean, you work hard all week long, and you end up going to synagogue. You end up going to temple. You end up going to church. On the day, I mean, you could be playing golf, or you could take the day for your family, but instead you come to church, and the idea is that maybe we're going to get a boost here. And Jesus said, my God, 
They work all week long and then they come to church and a heavier burden is put on them. Work is not replaced with Sabbath, it's replaced with more work. And now it's not the work of hands, it's the work of heart. And it's, you teach them to stand on their tiptoes and cajole the divine and go through incantations and all this stuff. And Jesus said, you heap burdens on them that they cannot bear. And then he looked at the people and he said, but come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I mean, I, I see him looking at a 21-year-old young preacher. My great-grandfather told me that he never felt like he could stand in the pulpit unless he had been on his knees three hours that day. And I took that. Somehow, spirituality had to be about paying the price and hurting and struggling and wrestling with God and trying to get God in a headlock and... And he said to people like me, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If you're worn out with baptism or repentance or prayer or any of the other elements of spirituality, if you're worn out with them, come to me. You'll find in me the unforced rhythms of grace. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. And so for me, I am trying these days not to feel bad about not having a lot to say, in a world where 10,000 children starve to death every day, in a world where people make so many claims about what God does for them, and people struggle with the absence of God they feel in their life, I, I have so little to say to add to that vast mystery. But there is this sense of just pressing my ear into the heart of the universe, into the heart of God, and listening for that heartbeat. That is not the heart of a cadaver, but is the heart of a resurrected one. Angelus Cilicius said, Prayer is neither word nor gesture, chant nor sound. It is to be in still communication with our ground. Dog Hammerjold said, Your cravings as a human animal do not become prayer just because it's God you ask to attend to them. Ultimately, Romans 8 says that even God prays. So for me, prayer is no longer this thing that I do to God. Prayer is this thing that I do with God. Because Romans 8 admits, it says that creation's groaning. And then Romans 8 goes on to say, and we're groaning. And then this great relief comes from the end of Romans 8. And Paul says, and actually the Holy Spirit's groaning too. And then he says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. What a release that is. We don't know what to pray. But he said, the Holy Spirit knows what to pray and prays for us. Wow. Prayer is no longer for me just talking to God. Prayer for me is this divine activity that I join with God in. So, prayer has become union with God and so much about prayer I think rests in our view of God. I mean how you talk to someone, think about all the different people in your life and all the different ways you communicate with them. How you talk to someone really says a lot about how you feel about them. Think about it. There are different categories of people in your life and you talk differently to all of them. There are some people that you feel so comfortable that you can just unveil your heart to. There are people that you have to stay in strict formality with. 
what you're doing and the manner of speech that you bring to a relationship is you are with that manner of speech, not just your words, but the way you speak, you're saying something about how you feel about that person. And for me, and I keep saying for me because that's a, that's a huge element of spirituality, I, I have no sense anymore, just literally no sense anymore that somehow God is an eternal satellite that if I send the message upright to that eternal satellite, God will then beam that. If I get it to God right, God will beam that down and touch somebody. That somehow I'm talking God into doing something and God is waiting on me to pray good enough and perform good enough. I think a lot of religion and again, I love religion, but I think a lot of religion goes wrong, and we spend way too much time teaching people how to swim instead of teaching people how to find the current. And there's been way too much swimming in my life, way too much effort in my life, but I think there's a grain to the universe and a current to the universe, and when you finally find it, you just roll over on your back and you've got it. It's like you don't need all the mechanisms and the motors. You just set your sail, and if it catches the wind that's already there, you're going. That's what Jesus meant when he said, consider the lilies of the field. They toil not. They don't strive. They don't try to get it right. I remember for years, just because of what my great-granddad said to me, I felt like if I didn't have both knees, and they had to be hurting. It was better if there wasn't carpet. You know, you got to get on concrete. Really make it hurt. <laughs> Jesus said, look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They don't read lots of books on this. They're not botanical experts academically. Just look at the lilies. The lily's only responsibility is to get in right relationship with the soil and the sun. And when they get in right relationship with the soil and the sun, they toil not, and yet they grow. And I think in religion there's a lot, and in this area of prayer, there's a lot of toiling. Melissa's going to talk in a week or two about even our idea of worship. <laughs> You're going to talk now. I'm almost I done. I didn't do it. It was them. I'm almost done. <laughs> Before I was rudely interrupted by Kelly's laugh, um, <laughs> Melissa's going to talk about our corporate worship because I think even corporate worship and the idea of worship has fallen in that same category. It's like, let's worship God, and everybody's like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of toiling and striving is what Jesus is trying to relieve us of. So that's for me what prayer is. But the reason that's such a journey is because of stories like Melissa's about to tell um, now. So you're speaking to what it is for you now, and what I heard you say is that it's not necessarily transactional with God. And it doesn't yet, feel that way. That's how most of us grew up thinking about prayer. It was this transaction. Um, there were four categories of prayer. There was prayers of thanksgiving or prayers of praise, prayers of supplication, praying for ourselves, or prayers of intercession, praying for someone else. It was all these words to God, and yet I found, and that's when the questions came for me on my journey, when the hurricane approaches or when drought spreads across our continent or when nations are at war, people will fall to their knees and ask God, cry out to God to intervene. 
to suspend the laws of nature to perform a miracle. Then when a child falls ill, when a job is in jeopardy, when a diagnosis is not good, prayer became or seems to be our only source of hope. But if, in spite of prayer, that hurricane still reaches the land, it still spreads devastation, a passenger jet falls from the skies, a loved one dies, some of those that were then praying then struggle. So does God play a numbers game with us? Does God care more for a celebrity for whom more people are praying for and not for that person on Skid Row for whom no one prayed? If I prayed for a loved one's healing and that person doesn't get better, does that mean that God didn't hear me? Or doesn't want the one for whom I was praying to live? If the one for whom I was praying did get well and the person in the next bed, in the next room in that hospital doesn't, does that mean that God liked my person more? If I pray for a child hurt in an auto accident and that child miraculously um, recovers, did God do that? If God helped the child recover, then why didn't God just stop the accident in the first place? Does God send tragedy then to test us and then ask us to call forth our prayers in response to that tragedy? Could God have stopped things like the Holocaust? And if not, or if so, why didn't God? These are the type of questions that I've had about prayer on my journey, and maybe you've had them too. If God, as theologian Paul Tillich says, is the ground of all being, if God is the life force, if God is the spirit of love underlying all of life, if God then is the essence of being itself, if God for me then is not somewhere out there, but is instead at the core of all that is, God is the creative energy then that established this life, and then God is the spirit or eternal presence of love connecting all living things. So then the God please do my will prayers or the God step in and intervene prayers, they're confusing, right? Because if God is with us, then God is feeling everything that we feel. God is walking with us and is aware of our pains and aware of our joys. We say it all the time. Do we really believe that God is not aware of our ailments? Do we have to remind God of these things? Do we believe that God is far from us and we need to call God or summon God's presence to come to this place? Buechner, Frederick Buechner has this quote that all theology is in great part autobiography and that is so true. So for me, my story, the experience that most shaped my understanding of prayer had to do with my brother-in-law Jody. In 2006, Hutch, my son, was first born and all my family moved up from Florida to be together. Everyone wanted to be in Tennessee anyways, and this grandchild being born seemed like a great place and time to come. So my sister and my brother-in-law moved up. They were 32 at the time, had a two-year-old little boy. And shortly after they arrived, Jody, my brother-in-law, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And then over the next months, we walked those ups and downs of life with cancer, the chemotherapy and the trial drugs and I was at the time um, still a part of the group Avalon, traveling and touring, and, but to my family, or to most of my family, I was the spiritual leader. I was the pastor long before I had that title here. And so we began to pray fervently. I was singing um, at Women of Faith conferences, traveling all over the world, so I was in front of 10,000 women every weekend, and I would ask those women, and we would pray hard for healing for my brother-in-law, Jody. So we prayed for healing, we prayed for intervention, we fasted. Then fast forward to September of the next year, 
I was in Atlanta at a concert and I got a call that Jody had been rushed to the ICU at Williamson County. And so we rushed home from Atlanta and I met my sister there. And we and I say we, people like Josh and Aaron and, and Mike and Shelly Kofal, who've been friends with me for over 15 years, all of us were at the hospital with my mom and my sister. And we slept on that hospital room floor for three nights and waited and prayed and prayed. And then we got the news, Jody called us into the room with the doctors and he said he was ready to go home. And so he said he loved my sister, looked her in the eyes, and then said he was ready to go and didn't speak another word. And then we sat with him over the next probably 14 hours and we'd leave the room for a couple of hours just to take a break and come back in and finally just coincidentally we all happened to be in the room at the same time. And I remember something that stood out to me so beautiful was a pastor from Thompson Station Church, which is where I attended at the time, one of the associate pastors came in and sat down by the bedside, bedside and began reading to Jody and reading from Revelation and using the vivid imagery of what most believe heaven, or that, that passage is pointing to about heaven. And he read it and he would say, Jody, do you see it? Can you see it? So we all stood there. And Jody opened his eyes one last time, looked at my sister as if to say goodbye, and then we watched him take his last breath. And it was peaceful and it was sacred. But then my questions came and my wrestling began. God, we did everything your word tells us to do. We prayed, we sought, we asked that you would intervene. So why did you not intervene? Why did we not get the answers that we longed for? Why did this mountain not move after we asked it to? Is there some secret formula to get prayer to work? And if there is, why not show us? Why not reveal us? I wrote a song right after that and recorded it on this solo CD that I did called To Trust You. And it said these words, I can choose to ask why, I can choose to be angry. I can wrestle when life is not what I thought it would be. I could wish that all the pain would simply go away, but at the same time, I can choose to trust you. And I went on to write, to trust your ways are not my way, to know there's purpose in this way, to trust that you will bring me joy again. And that's where I was on my journey at the time. That's what I believed and was wrestling with, and it was the gist of that. I can do all of these things, and yet prayer, or God, God doesn't seem to work like this, right? And if he does, then why didn't it work the way we thought it would? So I began asking the questions, is God all loving and all powerful? And if he's both, then why didn't it work? Or maybe he's not both. And that doesn't make much sense to me either, and yet that's what I was struggling with. I, I, I would have believed at the time that God simply said no to my prayer, right? But that's what God does. Sometimes God says yes, and sometimes God says no, and we just need to trust God. But I kept asking, so if prayer is not this magic spell, then who is God and how does prayer work? I can tell you that during that whole process that I felt this peace, I felt this presence of God. I remember I was getting off at 65 just shortly after Jody had passed, and I saw this red-tailed hawk. And it was beautiful, and in that moment, it was as if God was saying to me, I'm with you, I'm with you. And then I started seeing this hawk everywhere, and I realized that these hawks are prevalent in this area now in Tennessee, <laughs> and yet I'd never seen it before. 
And I found this assurance that God was saying, I'm with you in the suffering, I'm with you in the pain, I'm with you in every part of your life. So count it as all joy when I moved in last summer to our house and we have one neighbor, um, the way we sit on the cul-de-sac, and my one neighbor happens to be a falconer. A falconer, do you know what, they they work with hawks, okay? So he literally says this to me and my husband, and then I'm freaking out and run to the door because I overhear it, and he said, oh, I've got a red-tailed hawk next door. And I was like, God lives next door. Okay. (laughs) So it just brought me to start asking the questions, though. How does prayer work? Because I don't think it works the way I thought it would work, and that's how I got probably to where I am now on my journey. I love the story about the red-tailed hawk, and, you know... From my background, you see the red-tailed hawk, and it seems like this divine intervention and this highly exceptional miracle. And then you find out that red-tailed hawks are everywhere around here, and it debunks the miracle. And yet, for me, it's the exact opposite now. The fact that there are hawks, the miracle is not that God brought a hawk from South America. The miracle is that your eyes are finally open to see that there are hawks everywhere. And I think as we're, you said some stuff to me this morning that I want you to get to about what prayer is becoming for you. All of us, when we go through that, and for anybody on a religious journey, a spiritual journey that has to do with religion, the deconstruction process that is a part of the weaning of life and maturation of life, it's always painful in the beginning. And it generally, through the pain, yields kind of a nothingness, a religious expression. And that's really bothersome to a lot of people because we know what we don't do anymore, but we don't know what we do. And I really encourage you, when you come to that place of nothingness, rest there. That actually is a wonderful place to be where you don't do anything. Maybe the first stage of not toiling is just not toiling. And not immediately replacing deconstruction with reconstruction. Um, I love, I love the idea that as we're developing our view of, as our view of God is growing, and Jesus said that. Jesus said, "I have a lot to tell you, but you can't bear it now." But remember what he said. He said, "When the Holy Spirit comes," and this is as Phyllis Tickle reminds us, the age of the Spirit. He said, "The Holy Spirit will teach you all things about me." We're still learning about Jesus. We're still learning about the incarnation. We're still learning about who God is. And I think the more religious people are learning about God, the common denominator seems to be this idea that Tillich had of groundedness, that God is not out there. If there's one innovation that's happening, it's that God's not out there. God is here. The red-tailed hawks are not flying in from South America. They are swarming our soul and we haven't seen them. And what really is happening is not that God is showing up, but the true nature of epiphany is not God coming. The true nature of epiphany is the the scales falling off of our eyes and us finally seeing what always has been. And I think what we're recognizing is that Jesus was right. The kingdom of heaven is within The incarnation was not the grand exceptional move of God. The incarnation, God coming in Jesus, was God trying to say, this is where I've always been, in the flesh of humanity, the ground of being. That's why 
Paul looked and said, Jesus is the second Adam. He didn't say he's the second Gabriel. He didn't find a celestial name. He looked back to the derivation of humanity, and he looked at a human being from the dust of the earth, and he said, that's Adam. And then he looked at Jesus and said, God in flesh, that's Adam, the image of God. We are growing into this groundedness, this sense that the red-tailed hawks are a swarm in our soul if we only have eyes to see them. So, I love that idea. I also, as the view of God unfolds and develops in all of us, and we're growing into this vast mystery, I also think the way that we interact with God is necessarily changing. And for me, it does not seem that even when you were saying Jody was not healed, I, I don't even see, you know, a lot of people have chalked that up and says, well, God said no. And sometimes I don't feel like God said yes or no. I don't feel like God even says. I think God is beyond saying. Because even that's not comforting to me. And it, comforting aside, it doesn't resonate with me that God's sitting at a desk saying yes, no, yes, 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 no, no. And God is continually fielding all of these things and making decisions. And I know Garth Brooks had a good song, God, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. No, I just think you didn't end up with that gal. You don't bring God into it. You know, you don't have to bring God into every football game. You know, I still don't know what we're thanking God for out there. We beat the other team. They've got Christians on their team too. You know, I don't, is God really involved in football games? Some of you think he is, um, and that's fine. Uh, woo pig suey. I thought he was last night as my Razorbacks beat your volunteers, but yeah. so if God is not the grand interventionalist, I've come to a peaceful place that I think God seldom intervenes and overrides the natural laws of the universe. Because I think the natural laws of the universe are the original gift of God. At the same time that I don't see God as the grand interventionist, the genie in my pocket, the three wishes, the magic wand. I do know that I hear stories of people, not just from our faith, but around this world we continually hear stories of people that somehow take a journey, experience a miracle, and even medical science can't explain it. I personally don't think that's a red-tailed hawk of healing swarming in from the outside as much as Madeline Lee Engel says, we are all made in the image of God and maybe all of us could walk on water if we finally access the fullness of what is inside of us. I think the human body is invested by God with a lot of the image of God and it can do uncanny things. And what happens when one person has the tumors healed? What happens when the stars of their faith line up and a miracle is given? I don't understand all that, but I would never say no to that, and I will always keep the do door of my heart ajar to that kind of thing. But if that thing happens to me, it doesn't feel as much like the hawk swooped in from the outside or heaven as much as somehow I found a capacity within, and 
the divine image inside of me did something beyond the pale of science. I think some things that we have called miracles through the year, as time unfolds, we actually recognize that we have explanations for that medically and scientifically, but that doesn't demean the idea of miracle. It simply says the miracles are yet to be recognized. What our bodies, what our creation can actually do is beyond the scope of what we could understand. So what is a miracle even comes into question for me. You say, are you diminishing the idea of miracle? No, I'm actually elevating it and saying all of life is miracle if we but find the way in. And those portals are not between the planets. Those portals are between our ears. And so those are the kinds of things I explore in contemplation. The stuff that you read to me this morning, I'd love for you to close us with that. So I love the idea of what he's speaking to, us choosing to stand in the reality of God, us choosing then to operate out of it, to live this life of prayer rather than to just formally do the activity of prayer, right? There's a big difference there. So the Apostle Paul says to pray without ceasing. So the question is, are we talking about words and transaction between us and God, or are we talking about a lifestyle here? St. Augustine says, true whole prayer is nothing but love. True whole prayer is nothing but love. So is prayer then this energy that he's speaking of from flowing from one human being to another where we recognize how we are somehow very interdependent in this life, even though we don't quite fully understand all of that? Is prayer then also the beauty of being honest with God, with ourselves and with others? Is prayer the time we spend counseling? Is the time we spend sharing life intimately with a person who's in a very difficult position? And in doing so, does that open us up to a relationship? Does that begin to expand and open up our lives to more? Or is prayer simply the words that we string together formally to God? See, my actions, my engagement with people facing these very hard, concrete issues, these become the real times of prayer for me. Prayer came to be identified with my living and my loving, with my being, with meeting and confronting my struggles for justice, my desire to then be an agent for transformation in this world. That is where I met and meet and commune with God. God was no longer just found in places of retreat. God is found in the midst of my busy and sometimes troubling life. God was not just found on the stable rocks, but God was found in the rushing rapids as well. Bishop uh, Spong says, if prayer is the act of engaging God, if God then is the source of life, then my prayer time became my time of engaging life. My prayer time becomes my time of engaging life. So if God is located within our lives, not separate from us, remember we thought if God is holy, then God must be separate from us because we are sinners. And yet, if God is not separate from us, if God is with us and in us, then all of prayer, our ways of prayer become turned upside down. Prayer becomes the way we live, the way we love, the way we struggle and dare to be. Could prayer be the way that I try to live by my God-embedded virtues and values? Could prayer be the way that I seek to be, bring meaning to my life here and now? Could prayer be the way that we prepare ourselves by quietly reflecting how grateful and how thankful we are? And then with that reflection steeped in this gratitude, let it lead us to action. Let it lead us to living differently, acknowledging our dependence on others and our gratitude for others in this world. For we see God in Jesus of Nazareth, right? 
We see that God was revealed then also in the personhood of everyone, that God is present in the love of everyone, that this God then is then encountered with everyone and with everything like that hawk. This God then calls us to constantly recognize the incarnation of God's love everywhere. And we can do this by working to enhance the humanity of every person. One of the authors that I read said, we can do prayer by choosing to free the life present in every person, to increase the love available to every person, and to celebrate the being of every person. It's in those actions then that we can discern the very presence of the divine footprints of God that is with us always. So should we stop praying? Should we stop um, engaging in what we call this healing prayer? No, I don't think so. I think that that is a beautiful symbol then when we lay hands on somebody of our interconnectedness, our interdependence, um, and the need that we have to truly care for one another to express truly that we are together in this, which we've talked about a lot this summer. I'm convinced that our lives are more closely related than any one of us realizes. There seems to be this energy, right, that flows from one person to another as we love. And there may even be this healing power in that, but I don't think we're quick to try to define that. So prayer for progressive Christians, it's not then talking to this external supernatural being. It's not Harry Potter style, right? It's not a magic thing. It's not hoping that if we use the right gestures or say simply the right words, that then God will step in and manipulate the situation for us. Neither is God this Santa style God that if we are good, then we're gonna get everything that we ask for. No, the Reverend Rex Hunt says for progressives, Prayer can be described as poetry or language of the heart, not just in some interior realm, and certainly not just in some oral heavenly escape, but as an invitation to sense the connectedness of the whole of life, the in-betweenness of God, the always present God rather than the elsewhere God. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard once commented, prayer does not change God, but it changes him or her who prays. Others have refined that a bit to say prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes people, and people change things. People change things. So rather than an emphasis on this petitional form of prayer, many progressives experience prayer as listening in silence, this meditation that Stan is talking about, which, man, I think we need more silence in our lives. We probably need more silence in this service, and we're going to try to begin doing that. So prayer can be the silence and this meditation. Prayer can be then giving insights into ourselves and into others. Prayer can be a way to connect us to each other. And prayer can be intentional ways for us verbally sharing our joys and our concerns and our sorrows. So these forms of prayer, it's this gratitude for life. It's this way maybe that we place hands on someone to remind them that we are with them in this and asking things like, what can we do for you? And prayer can also be meditation in probably a whole host of other ways. See, God is everywhere. God is holding everything in existence. And then Jesus then became the revealer of God with us. So our prayer then is about awareness and affirmation and gratitude. I told Stan Jr. one time when he was five, we were at a store, Walmart or Target or somewhere. I told him, I said, Bub, you, you've been wandering off from me a lot. And I want you today to keep your eye on me and don't wander off from me. You don't need to wander off from Dad. He didn't listen very well. And within two minutes, there he went down the toy aisle. And I let him go. 
I let him go. Sometimes that's the pedagogy of a parent. Let them have their way, right? I let him go, and I followed him from a distance for two or three minutes. In a little bit, he looked around, and I wasn't there. And I watched the little tremble, and I saw him say, Dad? And I stood behind the shelf. You might think this is cruel, um, but in the moment I felt like it was the right thing to do, and it turned out, I think, to be a good thing for him. I let him take an agonizing two to three minutes and turn Dwayne down every aisle looking for me. Finally, he got so frantic, he wasn't looking over his shoulder, so I literally got right up behind him and was walking with him as he, on the point of tears, was frantically saying, Dad! Dad! And when I couldn't take it anymore, I put my hand on his shoulders and he startled, and I said, who are you hollering for? And I'll never forget what he did. He looked up at me, relief, and he sank into my arms. And he said, were you there the whole time? And I said, I always have been. And for me, that feels so much like my religious journey with prayer and worship and all of these things. Glenn, I remember five years ago, ten years ago, when we were sitting around saying, worship, even that word, we were looking at it. I frantically employed prayer as this thing where I ran down every aisle screaming the name of God, hoping to invoke the presence of God through my sincerity, my cajoling, my begging, and then one day, I looked up. I wish it would have been one day. In the process, I looked up. And as Gary S. Paxton said, he was there all the time. And there was no way, David said. At the end of David's life, he looked back and said, there were times I thought God was there, times I thought God wasn't there. But in the end, David reflected and said, when I made my bed in the heaven... You were there. And when I made my bed in hell, you were there. I was looking and hollering for you with religious machination, and all the while you were closer than a breath, closer than the whisper of your name. And leaning into that is much more, I think, healing for me and much more akin to the way I intuit and feel life. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a great naturalist, said, I do believe in prayer, but I believe prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. You know prayer? Prayer is the contemplation of the real facts of life from the highest point of view. Prayer is leaning into God and finally crawling up onto God and looking over at God's shoulder and trying to capture the angle at which God sees the world. And if I could look through God's eyes, if I could find that place of perspective, um, I think that's a more restful place. Now, practically, there's so much about what happens on Sunday mornings and Saturdays and temples and synagogues and church that is so esoteric and is so impracticable and ivory tower professionals talk such abstracts and academics that the people leave and think that was a really good message, but it absolutely is irrelevant to my life.
I'm, I am not a professional. 30 years in, I do not feel a professional in this matter. I feel after, after all of my degrees and all of my study, I feel like I have backed up. And some of you, I feel like I'm a couple chapters behind on this subject. At best, I'm not, you know, I'm not an authority on this subject, but I may be a chapter ahead of some of you. You know, you could always tell the algebra teacher who had a PhD from University of Missouri at Rolla that taught eighth grade, you know, algebra, and the football coach who took Cal 1 and made a C in college and is teaching algebra. There's just a depth of knowledge. The football coach was about a chapter ahead of you on the quadratic formula, but the guy with a math degree knew the stuff in depth. And I don't feel like the guy with the math degree. I feel like somebody who is personally being healed in 24-minute silent spaces. I feel like someone who is really resting into God now saying, have you been following me the whole way? Were you really letting me spend the last 15 years screaming for you and you were right here? Practically, I would ask you this week, I'm not going to say go pray this week, I would ask you this week to reflect and ask yourself, where does prayer fit into my life? If somebody would have asked me five years ago, where does prayer fit into your life, I would have had nothing more to add than what we do in this church because I had moved into a place of nothingness and it was a healing space for me. Maybe prayer is still something that you are comfortable with, as you've always done it, maybe prayer is something for you that you're terribly uncomfortable with and you have an estrangement from it. Uh, maybe prayer is kind of a peaceful nothingness right now. Maybe you have a rhythm to prayer as I'm beginning to find. I don't know. But I would love this week for you just to take the week and say, where does prayer, where does communication with God fit into my life? What does it say about how I feel even about God? If you never find a space to pray outside of here or you never understand or think about prayer outside of here, what does that say about where you are in your relationship with God right now and yourself? I think introspection this week on the subject of prayer may be even better than us giving you some formal exercise and say, everybody do this this week. Where does prayer fit in? Does that make sense? Yeah. Where does prayer fit into my life? And maybe next week, um, we've got John Pavlovitz coming, which is going to be, that's next week, right? Which will be awesome. The next week, I think, as we segue into your part on worship and corporate worship, I think we'll segue a little bit, maybe reflect back on this week of introspection, maybe even take some questions, and I think that's a perfect segue because really corporate worship is corporate prayer. How we pray together, you know, sometimes I think to myself when I say, let's pray, and I lead prayers, I think, is that the way I sound when I'm by myself? Do I say those? Am I talking to them or am I talking to God? Sometimes prayer is nothing more than the preacher trying to get his last point in because the sermon's been too long. What is prayer in your life? <laughs>